welcome to Medical Revolution in Progress, and I'm your host, Jennifer, and today we'll be talking about informed consent. Informed consent is something that every patient and doctor should discuss before a procedure, before a shot, a vaccination, any sort of treatment, And even when you're prescribed a medication, informed consent is really important. This is an ethical issue. This is a legal issue. And I think that this may have been lost for many practitioners and patients. So get ready for today's episode. Hello. So today we are going to talk about informed consent. And... What made me think about this was the doctor who was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast, Dr. Asim Mahatro, Malhatro, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. I had seen him back in 2019 uh, doing a presentation at the European Parliament. He had gotten himself into some trouble because of some research and some commentary that he had published I believe in the British Journal of Medicine, BJM, regarding stents, cardiac stents. And so I'm just going to play a little clip of that right now. And so you can sort of understand where he was coming from. So it was widely reported in America that George Bush received a stent for heart disease. However, apparently he had been cycling um, 100 miles a week before. There was no report that he'd had a heart attack. And as far as we know, he just went for a routine check under his cardiologist and ended up with a heart stent. And my guess is this, that President, ex-President Bush probably wasn't told it wasn't going to prevent him having a heart attack or prolong his life. So I basically wrote an editorial saying... So let's stop right there. So even the president, he was ex at the time, but the ex-president was not given proper informed consent for a cardiac stent. So, yeah, I think this is an important issue for people to be aware of. Let's go on here. Actually, we need to be more explicit with patients and emphasize the importance of lifestyle changes and medications that can help prevent heart attacks. But certainly this procedure, um, you know, there isn't fully informed consent because the actual procedure itself um, does carry a risk, a 1% risk of having a heart attack, stroke or death. And in my career, I've seen patients that unfortunately have suffered a complication that couldn't be predicted, where they've either had a stroke on the table or they've died. And I thought to myself, wow, this patient's symptoms weren't that severe, yet if they'd probably been left alone and hadn't had the procedure, they'd still be alive today. Or they may have changed the decision-making process about if they were informed about the actual true benefits of the procedure, they may have changed their mind not had it done and still be alive. And so I just want to point out that he said the risk was 1%, which may sound pretty low if you think about it, but what's the benefit? And he's going to get to that part in just a second. So, um, you know, I, I emphasize that we should actually make this mandatory in the consent form to protect patients from these unnecessary harms. And uh, the second editorial in JAMA Internal Medicine was really re-emphasizing that. It was press released and picked up by BBC News. And uh, interestingly, uh, the um, chairman of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges 
the, the body in the UK that represents almost every doctor agreed with me, said this was a legitimate concern uh, in, in the press release. Um, the British Cardiovascular Intervention Society, interestingly, run by cardiologists who do heart stents, um, their response was um, they didn't think that changing the consent form uh, was actually the best way to manage this problem. He says surprisingly that this uh, cardiology organization didn't agree, but that's obviously him being facetious because cardiologists were making at the time and may still be making quite a lot of money on these stenting procedures. And so it actually isn't surprising that they didn't agree that informed consent should be revised, giving patients more information. Which I thought was very interesting, but clearly there is a bias there. What I didn't predict is several months later, JAMA Internal Medicine then published a paper where they actually gave this scenario to patients to see whether it would change the decision-making process. And it actually did significantly. When patients were told there wasn't a benefit from stenting for stable disease and preventing a heart attack, stroke, or death, they um, changed their decision-making process, reducing the amount of people taking a, having a stent by about 25%. So the... The fact that they told patients these these are the risks if you get it and if you if you uh, don't get it then there won't be any risks in other words because getting the stent doesn't prevent anything from happening it's unbelievable that this is even a procedure that was approved. And it was estimated if this conversation was to go on, just a very simple, transparent conversation across the United States with cardiologists and their patients, then reducing the amount of unnecessary treatments would, would, would potentially save U.S. healthcare $864 million a year just from one conversation about one particular procedure. And not only would it save, them, save money, it would save people's lives. And so, you know, I, I honestly, um, when I heard this, I was, I was in shock. When he goes, when Dr. Mahotra is on Joe Rogan, um, I listened to some of that, but he talks more about his uh, discovery regarding statins and how statins really are overprescribed and patients and doctors don't discuss enough the side effects of statins. If you're on a statin, do not stop taking your statin. I am not giving medical advice on this podcast, but I am merely stating if you are getting any procedure or if you're on any medications, you just want to make sure that the benefit of the medicine, procedure, surgery, whatever, outweighs the risk for you. Uh, and that's really what this is about. And so when I heard that, I heard him, I went back to that, I started thinking about informed consent. So let's talk about what informed consent is. Uh, if you look at the American Medical Association, they describe informed consent as medical treatment. Um, uh, informed consent to medical treatment is fundamental, both ethically and legally, and pa patients have the right to receive information, ask questions about re recommended treatments so that they can make well-considered decisions. The process of informed consent 
occurs between the patient and the medical provider, typically a physician, could be PANP, and uh, basically discuss, you know, um, make sure first that the patient is um, able to have this discussion because some patients may be elderly um, or have some dementia, and, and so it might be harder for them if they have a uh, health care um, advocate, they're, they're, you know, a child or someone appointed by the court, that's who you'd want to discuss it with. But outside of that, once you understand the patient can understand, you want to talk about any relevant information that both accurately and sensitively um, addresses the concerns. You want to tell the patient what, what is being treated. If their diagnosis is known, it's known. If it's a vaccination, it's to prevent certain illnesses. You want to talk about the nature and the purpose of the intervention. You want to talk about the burdens, the risks, expected benefits of all options, and even including the benefit of foregoing a treatment or the detriment of foregoing a treatment. And then all this should be documented, not only in the patient chart, but typically you'll have a uh, informed consent form um, that is then put into your chart. And if you remember um, before COVID, when you got a flu vaccine, influenza, most places would have a informed consent that you had to check off. No, I'm not currently febrile. No, I've never had um, um, any allergy to egg products. And no, I've never had, I believe it's myasthenia gravis. No, it's it's the other one where um, you can become paralyzed after a flu shot, I'll think of it. So regardless, um, Again, this got me thinking about informed consent and how, honestly, uh, with the COVID vaccinations, we really lost, uh, we lost a lot of that. You know, unbeknownst to perhaps a lot of people, the COVID vaccination, when it first came out, Pfizer, Moderna, I don't remember which one, but whichever ones they were giving to patients, um, they were under an emergency use act. They were not FDA approved at the time. And because it was an emergency use act, um, this allowed the government to forgo a lot of maybe the safety measures that they would have had. Because at the time, the thinking was the benefit of getting this vaccine out to the public and decreasing the rate of COVID will help, you know, will help the overall general public. Uh, that being said, even though that was believed to be the case at the time, patients should still have been given informed consent for these vaccinations. And I don't believe that they were. I know um, one place, um, one health clinic where they were giving these out were utilizing um, just flu vaccination consent forms in place of COVID. But this was a lot different. You know, a true COVID vaccine consent form would have said a lot more. Um, it would have said that this is not FDA approved, um, that the risks to certain um, populations are not well known yet. And uh, 
this really wasn't done largely. I'd be really curious to know how many people out there that got COVID vaccines during the EUA, whether it was the first or even the booster, if they were informed about um, the risks and the benefits of getting this vaccine. Um, I was looking actually at um, the EUA, and I used to have the informed consent form, but of course they've taken that off the internet, Um, and so I can no longer find that. Uh, There were people, um, there were people fighting though for you and me and the public regarding this at that time. Um, They ended up ultimately not getting the EUA halted. Uh, but they they brought this to court against Dr. Fauci and the CDC and the World Health Organization, um, and they gave a really good fight. It was the front lines for doctors, and um, basically they presented some evidence, and here's some of the evidence. Um, in studying the effectiveness of a medical intervention in randomized controlled trials, the most useful way to present results is in terms of the absolute risk reduction. So this is the ARR, the acronym ARR. The absolute risk reduction compares the impact of treatment by comparing the outcomes of the treated group and the untreated group. So in other words, if 20 out of 100 untreated individuals have a negative outcome and 10 out of 100 treated individuals had a negative outcome, then the absolute risk reduction would be 10%. And so um, what was the absolute risk reduction for the Pfizer vaccine? So in other words, comparing people who were exposed to COVID and not given a vaccine versus comparing people who um, were exposed to COVID and given a vaccine. So either it's the, it's, you're looking at the group who, you know, was exposed to COVID after they were given a vaccine and what was their outcome? Was it a negative outcome? And then a group of people who weren't vaccinated and exposed to COVID, did they have a negative outcome? And so according to a study published by the National Institute of Health, the ARR for the Pfizer vaccine was 0.7%. And the ARR for the Moderna vaccine was only 1.1%. And so let's just kind of break that down because it is a little confusing when you think about it. But I will tell you that these numbers are incredibly small and that does not fare well. From the ARR, one can calculate the number needed to vaccinate. It signifies the number of people that must be injected before even one person benefits from the vaccine. So, you know, if everybody who has the vaccine, um, if one person gets vaccinated and that benefits 100 people, you would assume that that would probably be a good thing, right? So the the numbers needed to vaccinate for the Pfizer vaccine is 119. 
So 119 people had to be injected in order to observe the reduction of a COVID-19 case in one person. So the the reputed journal, The Lancet, reports data indicating that the number needed to vaccinate could even be as high as 217. So that means anywhere from 119 to 217 people would have to get the vaccination in order for one person to have a reduction in symptoms from COVID-19 and maybe not die. That, that's a lot of people, especially when you look at what the potential side effects are for those people. Several factors reduce the purported benefit of COVID-19 vaccines. And so it's important to note that um, the vaccines were only shown to reduce symptoms and not block transmission. And we all know that. They're readily admitting this now. Um, and for over a year, um, you know, these people were fighting state-level public health authorities and, um, you know, because they were telling people um, that this COVID-19 um, wouldn't be spread if they got the COVID-19 vaccine. But that wasn't the truth, and we all know that now. Another uh, journal, actually, um, an infectious disease journal, um, put forth some information regarding this as well. And basically, they, they did a study, and it was aim of the study, do patients comprehend a critical part of meeting medical ethics standards of informed consent in the study design? So the aim of the study was to determine if sufficient literature exists <clears throat> to require clinicians to disclose the specific risk that COVID-19 vaccines could worsen disease upon exposure to challenge or circulating virus. And so uh, basically, they published the published literature was reviewed to identify preclinical and clinical evidence that COVID-19 vaccines could worsen disease upon exposure to the virus. And the clinical trial protocols for COVID-19 vaccines were reviewed to determine if risks were properly disclosed. I think we can all guess what this ends up finding. But the conclusion drawn from the study was that the specific and significant COVID-19 risk of adverse effects should have been and should be prominently and independently disclosed to research subjects currently in vaccine trials, as well as those being recruited for the trials and future patients after vaccine approval in order to meet medical ethics standards. And and they're referring to these people as research subjects. Well, that's all of us. Those are all the people that were getting this vaccine when it was approved under an emergency use act, because those were, we were all research subjects. And if you weren't given an informed consent, then you essentially were given a vaccine and having a trial performed on you without you consenting. And so, you know, this is why a lot of people were, were sort of talking about this as it was going on. And and nobody really wanted to, he- not nobody, a lot of people didn't want to hear it because they were just terrified of the virus and then they didn't want to take a breath and sort of look. Also, a lot of people are not medically savvy or nor do they have the ability to sort of get this information, digest it in a way that makes sense to them. And and the government knows that, you know, they, they knew that because that's how they rushed it out.
um, you know, even even when the vaccines were put out, there were things stating right in the EUA um, that I read for myself that it's unknown how this will affect pregnant women, lactating women, or women trying to conceive. And yet I saw my own state, Connecticut, publish what I can only call propaganda stating, you know, if you're pregnant, you need to get vaccinated to save you and your baby and just terrifying women. I I wrote a letter to Connecticut's Department of Public Health at that point because I was just so appalled at at this. Um, And I knew some people that were pregnant during that time that got vaccinated um, that had healthy babies. And I know other ones that lost their, their babies after they were vaccinated. And so this, this is just something that I find um, reprehensible. So let's talk a little bit. We talked about stents and informed consent. And then we talked a little bit about COVID-19 vaccines, which I think is still somewhat relevant. Let's talk a little bit about some more vaccines. And really, I just want to bring up one. I don't want to go off on a big tangent here. I am not an anti-vaccination person. I am pro-informed consent for patients, and I think it's really important that people understand what's happening. And so I just want to bring up one vaccine, if I can help just a few people on this one, and that is the hepatitis B vaccine. Hepatitis B vaccine has really eradicated hepatitis B. When when I first started practicing 20-plus years ago, there were still people that were getting hepatitis B. And and almost all of those people were people who had used IV drugs. And now the people who get hep C are generally people who use IV drugs. In fact, I think a very large percentage, it might be like something like 80% of people who are IV drug users have hepatitis C, but not hepatitis B. And so hepatitis B did do something really good. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be vaccinated against it. My concern is more about babies being vaccinated with hepatitis B. So hepatitis B vaccination follows a schedule. And so you get it whatever day it is. And then you get it, I believe, three months later and then six months later. And and you're supposed to be at that point finished. That should be, you know, you should be done after that. And then at some point they can check the antibodies to see if you've developed it against the hep B. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that that's great. My issue is more about um, hepatitis B vaccinations being initiated on day one after a child is born. So if you go into the hospital and you give birth, you can expect your child to be injected with their first hepatitis B vaccination on that day, unless you have a discussion, because they typically won't have a discussion, or they might just shove something in your face, and if you don't know anybody, you'll just sign it, and your baby will get that hepatitis B vaccination. Now, I don't know if they've changed this, but I do know that that's how it was for a very long time, and so I just want people to be aware of that. Here's my argument against giving it on day one. The baby has just been released from the womb. It's literally like, what, 8, 10 pounds or less. The baby's brain is very small. Its nervous system is still developing. And 
the baby is not going to be subjected to any of the things that could potentially um, cause uh, hepatitis B. Hepatitis B is sexually transmitted. It's a bloodborne pathogen. And so outside of sexual transmission, um, which is can happen more likely in, in areas where anal sex is involved, but regardless, so hepatitis B from that, because it's blood to blood, or, you know, sharing razors, sharing a toothbrush, getting a tattoo, uh, getting a blood transfusion, which typically they'll screen that blood first, so hopefully not, or um, IV drug use. Babies are not at risk for any of those things. What is the rush for giving a baby a hepatitis B vaccination on day one? What is the rush? The baby is going to be seen a week later in the pediatric office and thereafter many other months. There's plenty of time to give this baby, start this child um, on their hepatitis B vaccination course. The other thing is there are many people who have been vaccinated by hepatitis B and never attain antibodies. And so they're just people that it doesn't work on. I don't know if that's a genetic factor. They may have discovered that by now. But regardless, please, I'm not telling you not to get it on day one if you have a baby, but I am telling you, you should seriously consider the risk-benefit ratio for these hepatitis B vaccinations on day one. Um, So that's really it. That's today's um, little rant, and I hope that was helpful to anyone just to know that any kind of procedure or injection or surgery that you're going to get, make sure that you receive proper informed consent from your medical provider, from your physician, from the doctor. And this includes vaccines. And I also believe it includes a medication that's being prescribed to you. Why is it being prescribed? What is the potential benefit? What are the potential risks? What are the common side effects? How long has this medicine been on the market? Is it a new medicine? When I first started practicing, there were, I think there was a medicine every month that was being taken off the shelves. These are medicines that clearly did not have a large study pool. That N number was really small because once it got prescribed widely, there were tons of complications. Some of those medicines I believe were prescribed incorrectly by the doctors, PAs, MPs, whichever, um, that were giving to them. There were some medications that I think were, were safe, but because people were prescribing them incorrectly, it caused a lot of problems. And so they were taken off the market. There was one in particular for irritable bowel syndrome. I can't remember the name right now. Uh, it was supposed to help symptoms um, for people who had excessive um, loose bowels. And um, if you gave it to them, it, it would help slow that down. But it ended up being prescribed to just anybody with irritable bowel. And some of those people have constipation that's pretty significant. And that ended up calling, causing ischemic colitis. And that was super dangerous. So that was one off the bat that I can think of. But Baycol is another. Baycol was a great uh, statin. It was one of the few that it was really the the one that raised HDL the highest, but it caused a lot of myopathy, myalgias, and things like that. Um, and then there was also another one. I don't know if Actos is still in the market, but 
it was a type of medicine like Actos um, that that was it ended up being taken off the market. But I mean, it seemed like every month there was another medicine being taken off the market. Benicar, that was another one. That was an ARB. It was one of the best in terms of uh, lowering blood pressures. Um, but it, I think it just made people hypotensive. And I think probably some of those people shouldn't have been on an antihypertensive to begin with. But regardless, this is just really for people to be informed about what informed consent is and not be afraid to ask questions and make sure you know what you're taking, what procedure you're having, what vaccination you're getting. Why is this going to help me? What happens if I don't take it? And, you know, demand those answers. Because if you don't, you will likely not get them. Look at what you're signing when you're going in for a procedure. And I would also just say one last thing on this. If you are recommended to get a surgery outside of an acute surgery, in other words, you're in the emergency department and you have appendicitis, not going to be able to get a second opinion because you could have a burst appendix and then become septic and, and end up in bad shape. But if it's not an emergency surgery or an acute situation, always get a second opinion. Even if you love your surgeon, always get a second opinion. I can't tell you how many times I had patients that I would send for a second opinion and they would hear something completely different from a board certified physician, surgeon. Um, but you don't want to get the second opinion inside the same practice. You want to get it outside of that practice. Really important. So I will continue to expose some of the behind the scenes in the medical field tomorrow. And I hope you'll join me. Have a good night, guys. Peace out.